You're listening to a devotion by Christ Baptist Church. For more resources, visit our website at ChristBaptist.org. Today, we continue along our journey back to the 18th century. Specifically, we are thinking about God's work in that century that gave, uh, the century that gave birth to America. Even more specifically, we are looking at the life of George Whitfield, who ha- was the key Uh, and key leader in what is known now as the Great Awakening. Uh, The Great Awakening took place principally in England and in the British colonies. Uh, That would eventually, of course, become, at least some of them would become, the United States of America. We left our story with Whitfield, still an unbeliever. He was a young man who was floundering and wondering what to do with his life. His mother, who had always hoped he might become a minister, had lost hope of young George entering Oxford because the family fortunes had taken a significant turn for the worse. You may recall yesterday I noted that George's father, George Whitfield's father, had died when he was only two. And uh, his mother, who remarried eight years later, uh, that that marriage, second marriage, was not a happy one. And uh, the man she married drained the family resources and was very poor at business and Anyway, a disaster. So poor George uh, Whitfield, as he was growing up, it became very clear they could not afford to send him off to study to prepare to become an ordained minister. Then one day, it turned out that a a family friend uh, that uh, George's mother was talking to, uh, was talking to her, and, and, and she discovered through this friend that it was possible to enter into Oxford University if you were accepted, and, and to do so, uh, to pay the bills, you could become a servitor. What in the world is a servitor? Um, well, a servitor is a student who acted as a kind of, I'll say butler. It's not a great term because you know, he didn't wear the, the whole getup. Um, kind of a, a low butler, a general servant who would serve the wealthier students for a fee. Uh, again, you have to remember that in the 18th century, particularly in Britain, the class system was very, very prominent. <clears throat> so wealthy students did not wash their own clothes, they did not clean their own rooms, they did not serve themselves any food or anything. That was done by the servants or the servitors uh, who were fellow students who were, came from the lower classes. Well, this meant, uh, though this is a strange system to us, and um, this meant that uh, George Whitfield was able to go to Oxford and to study amidst this work. And he he entered to study divinity, but remember that he was still an unbeliever. Now, to us in our contemporary evangelical context, it might seem strange that someone would pursue studies leading to full-time Christian ministry and yet not be saved. But I promise you, not only did that happen in the 18th century, that happens today in the 21st century. Uh, Some do that because some enter into divinity school in order to to study for the ministry because they see no other option. I've heard that reason given. Some do it because they see it as an outlet for social work and community building. Some do it because in certain denominations they really are drawn to the formality and the structure and the order of church life. I remember in particular when I was at seminary uh, that uh, one, uh, one day when we had chapel, the professor who was uh, preaching for chapel service that day, uh, at the end of it, gave an invitation uh, and called on uh, everyone there to, to know that they were saved and to repent if not. Well, 
Um, a number of students uh, thought this was rather strange, and it happened that I, have, I was in the class uh, where a student raised his hand uh, after that chapel service and asked the professor, why would you offer an invitation? Why would you call on people to repent who are not believers when it was just a, students? That's all. There weren't any guests there. And the professor proceeded to tell us that it had not been that long ago, uh, it was before my time, but not that long before uh, that day that uh, he had heard a message in chapel to students from a visiting preacher, and that visiting preacher had uh, done the same thing. And to his amazement, there was a student in the student body who uh, was not saved, thought he was. He, he knew how to say the right things and do the right things and play the right part, but he recognized in the midst of that sermon that he, in fact, had not trusted in Jesus Christ uh, for his salvation. And so he said, I want to make sure that I never assume that all is well and everyone knows what the gospel is. And uh, that's, I think, a poignant lesson uh, for us all uh, to remember and to keep in mind. Well, back to Whitfield. Uh, he entered the University of Oxford. Uh, he was mocked and derided right from the very beginning because of his lowly status. Uh, his clothes were tattered and dirty, and he very much stuck out, uh, struck, uh, stuck out as uh, somebody who was not of the, uh, the middling or the upper classes. During this time, he wrestled mightily uh, with salvation. He pursued good works with alacrity, with a, a regular and strong effort to follow God. Um, to use the image that I, I used just this past Sunday, um, Whitfield very much camped out under the signpost of law. Instead of seeing the law, instead of seeing God's word as something that pointed him to faith in Christ, he understood the law as something that he needed to fulfill himself in his own strength. And he would later recognize that what he was doing was essentially trying to pursue sanctification in his own strength without being justified. In other words, he was getting the cart before the horse, to use an 18th century term. He believed that works that he had to do would somehow uh, begin to uh, grow and develop and establish the faith that he needed. Instead, of course, having it the right way around, which is to understand that faith in Christ and knowing who we are in Christ, trusting in him alone, leads to an obedience that is done in the power of the Spirit. Well, all of this attempt at good works and this incredible um, effort in doing good things led to uh, George Whitfield attending communion daily. And this is where he met Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was one of the higher class uh, of students uh, whose circle of friends Whitfield needed really to be invited into. He couldn't just join them. Again, class distinctions were very uh, strict and severe. And Charles, however, took a liking to George Whitfield because of his tremendous efforts and just he looked like a very pious young man. And so Charles invited Whit uh, George Whitfield to attend a student group that were called different names. Uh, they were called the Methodists at that time, just a small group of, of students. Uh, they were also known as the Holy Club. Uh, they didn't give them the, themselves that name. That was a, a name of teasing given by other students as they thought, oh, you think you're holier than us, so you must belong to the Holy Club. Well, indeed, this group was seeking the holy life, but all according to their own efforts, good works, and commitment to spiritual disciplines rather than trusting in Christ. Still, it was through this group that George Whitfield was introduced to a book that helped him see that good works could add nothing to his salvation. 
that, and this was for him a brand new idea. Uh, let me just read uh, to you from, from his own words. After he read this book, he said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Or shall I search it? I did search it, and holding the book in my hand, I thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, or if not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true Christianity is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us, a ray of divine life was instantaneously darted into my soul, and from that moment, and not until then, did I know I must become a new creature. Those are his own words. Whitfield kept diaries and so forth, and this is, and he wrote a, a, a autobiography. Uh, in his mid-twenties, and so uh, these are his own reflections about his experience. Well, after reading that book and recognizing that coming to faith in Christ, being a Christian meant actually becoming a new creation, a new creature, and not just somebody who's doing better and trying harder, he wasn't immediately saved, though he began to understand more of what it was he needed. And after months more of agonizing and searching and ever-increasing austerity and hopes of purging the sin that was in, within him, the truth of the gospel finally took root. It was during the Lent season, that season uh, leading up to Easter, when Whitfield was focusing on Jesus' crucifixion. He cried out to God in complete surrender, and as he says, at that moment he realized he was born again. And from that point on, he went from his usual morose, pathetic, pining self who was always worrying about, have I done enough, have I done enough, to walking throughout the campus of Oxford University singing psalms to himself, as he said, with joy because his sin was forgiven. As I think about this part of Whitfield's life, I see a very similar pattern to people today. There are many, I believe, many who have fallen into thinking that trying to live a good life is Christianity. Trying to live a good life is the gospel, when in fact, it's absolutely not. I wonder, do you know someone like this? And as we think of Whitfield's life and the things that God was doing there in the 18th century, I wonder how might you help the person that you know who is stuck in a wrong-headed thinking about the gospel? How might you help them on their way to understand that salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone.